I invite you to turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 1 as we continue our series on the book of Romans, the power of the gospel. Romans 1, this morning we'll look at, uh, we'll read verses 16 and 17. Uh, these verses are, are widely held to be the, the theme verses of the entire letter of Romans. And, uh, and so, and I would agree that these verses do communicate, convey the, the theme of the letter. Uh, they have also been said to be the most important verses in the letter and arguably the most important sen sentences in all of literature. I say that partly by way of introduction because it was, uh, I had every intention on covering these two verses in one sermon this morning, and that's not quite going to be the case. And so I know we're, we're going to, you feel like we're going to do that 47 years through Romans. I, I assure you it's not going to be quite that, but these verses are so weighty and so important and significant that we will cover it in two weeks. We'll look at verse 16 this week and verse 17 next week. They are certainly tied together, so I encourage you to come back next week. So if you are able, I invite you, actually before I invite you to stand, let's pray as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's bow together. Lord God, how good it is to gather in your house and worship and give glory to your name. How good it is to celebrate profession of faith in Moriah, to see what you have done in her and as we see what you have done in her, it reminds us, O oh Lord, what you have done in us as well. The gift of faith and your gracious and merciful work through the precious gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. And now I pray, O oh Lord, that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear and give us hearts to receive. O oh Lord, may your Holy Spirit reign in this place and reign in our hearts, that may our hearts be cultivated, that they may be good soil, that your word would fall on good soil to bear fruit to your glory and for our good. We offer ourselves to you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And now I invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's word. I want to thank Ben for filling in last week and covering uh, verses 8 through 15. And so we pick up now in verse 16. So Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Let me pause there really quickly because I'm not addressing that phrase in the sermon. 
Um, there is a, a chronological priority to the Jews in salvation history, but there's also, as Paul seems to suggest throughout the letter, a theological priority. There is a, an important place for the Jews in God's redemptive plan, and so that will come up later on in the letter, so I'm not going to cover it this morning. And then verse 17, which we'll look at next week. For in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You may be Ten years ago, I issued a challenge to our youth group here at Covenant Church. And it was a a fundraising challenge, and the agreement was that if they raised a certain amount of funds, then I would walk around the neighborhood dressed like a clown. And as it turns out, they did meet the fundraising goal, and so it was that on a warm Sunday afternoon with uh, lots of people out and about, uh, I put on a clown wig and a clown tie and a clown nose, and I took a 15-minute stroll around the neighborhood. This picture was taken right afterward when I had taken off the clown nose and taken off the clown tie, and I was probably smiling because I was so glad the whole ordeal was over. And I share that moment with you this morning because what I felt in that walk around the neighborhood at a very small level, but what I felt in that walk around the neighborhood was at least some sense of shame. I was ashamed because what I was wearing was outside the lines of what is socially acceptable. I was ashamed because I didn't fit in. I stood out as foolish and strange. According to Webster's Dictionary, to be ashamed is to be distressed or embarrassed by feelings of guilt, foolishness, or disgrace. And the question that I want to place before you this morning is this, are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? I would venture to say that most Christians, especially Western Christians, are at some level ashamed of the gospel. When Paul tells us in our text this morning that he is not ashamed of the gospel, the implication is that being ashamed of the gospel was a real possibility, a real threat, a real temptation for the Christians in Paul's day. And that is certainly understandable, especially for the Christians in Rome to whom Paul was writing, because Rome, of course, was the capital city of the Roman Empire, an empire entrenched in humanism an empire that prided itself in human achievement, an empire that was all about self-exaltation and and, and human progress and the glory of Rome. One scholar said Rome had no conscience. She was a lustful, devouring beast and made more beastly by her intelligence and splendor. Rome was the seat of power. In Paul's world, and it was a culture in which people derived whatever power they had from their social connections with people higher up on the ladder. And so there was a lot at stake in not being disgraced. 
because it would take you down a couple notches on that ladder. And so this was not an environment conducive to embracing the message of the gospel because remember, the gospel message is a message of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through the sacrificial death and perfect righteousness of Christ. The gospel message then flies in the face of humanism and self-exaltation and everything else the Roman Empire promoted and celebrated. It is a message that says God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. The gospel says that we are hopelessly lost and condemned and in need of a Savior to rescue us. It's a message about a man crucified in weakness to save those who were powerless to save themselves. It's a message that highlights human neediness and the condemning power of sin and a Savior who humbled himself to the most shameful kind of death, imaginable death on a cross. As Paul said to the Corinthians, the message of the cross was a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In the eyes of Rome, the gospel message was indeed a disgraceful message. And the word ashamed in Greek can also be translated as disgraced. To embrace the gospel in the Roman Empire was to place yourself then outside the lines of what is socially acceptable. To embrace the gospel was to stand out as foolish and strange. To embrace the gospel was to go around dressed like a clown. And what about us? What about me and, and, and you? Are you ashamed of the gospel? If it was a real threat for Christians to be ashamed of the gospel in Paul's day, then it, it is no less a threat for Christians today. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if you've never been ashamed of the gospel, it's not that you are an exceptionally good Christian, but it's that your understanding of the Christian message has never been clear. In other words, if, you're not, if you've never been ashamed of the gospel, it says you don't really get it. You don't fully understand it. I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us are, are, are pretty pathetic when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. And the reason why is either because we've not fully received or understood the message ourselves or it's because we're ashamed of it. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Well, there are a number of reasons why we might be ashamed of the gospel in our context. Uh, some of us are ashamed of the gospel because we don't want to cause offense. And let's face it, the gospel message is an offensive message, especially in a culture like ours that exalts self-worth and inclusion and, and tolerance. Our culture says you're good enough just the way you are and you deserve the best that life offers. The gospel says you're not good enough at all just the way you are. And you are a condemned sinner who deserves the wrath of God in hell. Our culture says you can make something of yourself. The gospel says you are hopelessly lost and you need a savior to rescue you. Our culture says all religions lead to the same glorious end. And the gospel says there's only one road to the glorious end of heaven and that is through faith in Christ alone. And so in a culture that so exalts self-worth and inclusion and tolerance, 
Nothing could be more offensive than the self-abasing message of the gospel with its exclusive claims and its intolerant language. We are ashamed of the gospel because we don't want to cause offense. Some of us are ashamed of the gospel because we don't want to invite opposition. We understand that not only is the gospel offensive, but it is increasingly in our culture met with opposition. So just like in Rome, the gospel message flies in the face of our humanistic, self-exalting culture. And we're afraid of what might happen if we, if we really put on display such a countercultural message. I think the Princeton professor Robert George captured it well, speaking at a national prayer breakfast back in 2014. He said, the days of socially acceptable Christianity in the West are over. The days of comfortable Christianity are past. It's no longer easy to be a faithful Christian and unashamed witness of the truths of the gospel. There are, he says, costs of discipleship, and the costs are burdensome and painful to bear. And then he went on to say what some of those costs of discipleship are. He said, to unashamedly proclaim the gospel in all of its fullness is to expose oneself to scorn and reproach. It is to place in jeopardy one's security and one's treasured friendships and one's personal ambitions and aspirations and one's standing in polite society. It is to be alienated, ridiculed, ostracized, and squashed down. To stand for the gospel is to pay the heavy costs of opposition. And of course, Paul himself knew this better than anyone, didn't he? In his letter to Timothy, Paul said, Of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Paul knew and he stated that there's a direct correlation, a direct correspondence between the suffering that he endures and the gospel he embraces and proclaims. To, to, to embrace one is to get the other. And yet Paul went on to say, that for him, such suffering and opposition was no cause for shame. He said, yet this is no cause for shame. The suffering that I endure, this gospel message I proclaim, is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And I wonder how many of us could authentically say the same. We are ashamed of the gospel because we don't want to invite opposition. Some of us are ashamed of the gospel because we don't want to taint our image. Thanks in large part to, to social media, we are a culture largely obsessed with image. We're constantly posting things to project a certain positive image of ourselves and we'll do anything to, to guard that image. We don't want to, anything to happen to, to tarnish it. A while ago, our, our niece was telling us about her roommate who has a boyfriend, and, and one morning she saw her roommate, her roommate had uh, posted a picture on Facebook of her boyfriend cooking breakfast, and she had posted that picture with a caption that said, a caption that said find yourself a man who will cook you breakfast. And of course, the image that that, that that picture and that message conveys is that all is so happy and well and what a great boyfriend I have and what a great life I, I live and, and look how great you know, my life is and if only you could find some, something like this for yourself. 
Well, our niece found that post a bit startling because she was there that morning. And for a whole hour leading up to the posting of that picture, she had listened to her roommate cry and sob and argue and beg her boyfriend to make her that breakfast that was posted in that picture. And so clearly, the image didn't correspond to the reality. And that's kind of the way it is when we're so driven by image and what other people think of us. We, we hang so much on the image that we project that we don't want to do anything to taint it. And if we're honest, aligning ourselves with the gospel is a sure way to taint our image because the world will see us as Jesus freaks and anti-intellectuals and they'll think that we're naive and that we're foolish and that we're weak and they will label us as haters and as bigots. We are ashamed of the gospel because we don't want to taint our image. Some of us are ashamed of the gospel. We could go on and on. There are so many. Let me just give you one more. Some of us are ashamed of the gospel because we don't really believe it. We may have some kind of nominal belief and we may say all the right things and perform all the right actions and sing the right songs and know the right creeds and claim to follow Jesus, but in the depth of our being, when it comes right down to it, we don't fully embrace the whole message of the gospel. We don't really see the awfulness of human sin and we don't really embrace the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ. We, we, we don't cherish Christ as our Savior because we don't really believe in the depth of our beings that he was God himself in human flesh sent to die for our hell-deserving sin and raised from the dead to give us everlasting life. We, we may say that we do, but in the depth of our being, we don't. And truth be told... We love the things of this world so much. We are like the third soil hears in Jesus' parable of the soils. We love the things of this world so much that we cannot say with Paul that we consider it all garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We are ashamed of the gospel because we don't really fully believe it. And so I ask you again, are you ashamed of the gospel? Well, it's into this environment of shame that Paul makes his bold statement in verse 16, and he says, I, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. And then he goes on to tell us why he's not ashamed of the gospel. And by implication, he's telling us why we are not to be ashamed of the gospel as well. And the reason we are not to be ashamed of the gospel, according to Paul, is because it is the power of God for salvation. He says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because, this is the reason why, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. You see, the gospel is not just a message we share. It's not an invitation. It's not a program we offer like some kind of diet plan or wellness seminar. The gospel is in itself the very power of God for salvation. And does that not 
take a whole lot of the pressure off? And does that not give us a sense of excitement and enthusiasm about sharing the gospel? Because if the gospel is sort of a message that we have to come up with on our own to persuade others that here's something good that I think if I share it the right way, that maybe you'll be persuaded to believe it as well. Well, who wants to be part of that? But if the gospel is the very power of God for salvation, then we are free to be agents of his power and let his power do its work as he wills. When Paul says the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, this is, I believe, what he means. I believe he's talking about the regenerative power of the gospel. He is saying that the gospel message itself has an effective and transforming power to draw people to a saving faith in Christ. In other words, the, the preaching of the gospel does not merely make salvation possible, but it affects salvation in those whom God has called. That, I think, is what Paul is saying. And partly... Why I say that I think that's what he says is because he says the same thing elsewhere. We see it more clearly, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul uses that same expression, the power of God. He says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So it's the same idea, the same expression. And then he goes on to say that this power of God is exercised in those whom God has called. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to those whom God has called. There is an effective connection between God's election and the preaching of the gospel. The message of the gospel brings to life the dead hearts of those whom God has chosen. I think we see this played out again and again and again in Paul's missionary journeys, don't we? Let me just give you one little glimpse of it in Acts, from Acts chapter 13. In Acts 13, Paul and his companions come to Pisidian Antioch. And Luke tells us that on the Sabbath day, Paul went into the synagogue, to, and in the synagogue he, he preached the gospel he laid out the gospel message. If you read Acts 13, it's this beautiful laying out of the good news of the gospel message. And the power of God was at work in that message. And so when Paul came back the next Sabbath to speak some more in Pisidian Antioch in the, in the synagogue there, Luke tells us that almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. In the preaching of the gospel, the power of God was at work drawing God's chosen people from death to life. And so Luke says in the end that all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to those appointed for eternal life. To those whom God has called. Which is another way of saying to those who believe. In his book titled God's Smuggler, Andrew Vanderbilt tells the true story of his own life. It's a great book. I'd recommend anyone to read it. As a boy in the Netherlands in the 1940s, uh, Andrew was 
craving adventure and he was resisting all the Christian influences in his life, influences like his mother who tried to get him to read the Bible and he wanted nothing to do with it. He just wanted adventure. And he said, the Bible and all that Christian stuff is so boring. I want nothing to do with that. Just give me adventure. And so he tried to find his, uh, to satisfy his craving for adventure by enlisting in the colonial army of the Dutch East Indies. This was uh, uh, in the 1940s. But he was wounded in battle shortly after joining, and he was sent home to a, a veteran's hospital to recover. And while he was there, in that veteran's hospital, one evening a young woman came and she invited uh, him and his, his buddies who were, they were all sitting in a room, sitting on their beds, just chatting and talking. This young woman came in and she invited them to a evangelistic tent revival meeting. And of course they wanted nothing to do with it. None of them wanted to go. But then she said there will be refreshments. And so they went for the refreshments. But to kind of help pass the time of this, what was sure to be a boring and uh, ridiculous and foolish event, Andrew and his friends uh, smuggled some bottles of alcohol into the event to help pass the time. And when the preacher began preaching about the good news of Jesus, sent to rescue people from the bondage of sin and of evil, Andrew and his friends were laughing in the back row, trying to hold back their laughter. And when the preacher went on to talk about the good news of salvation, and what God had done through the sacrificial death of his son Jesus, they began howling with laughter. But somehow, by the end of the night, the message had penetrated Andrew's heart. And he couldn't get the words out of his head. And through the preaching of the gospel, the, the power of God was at work in, in him, and it had gripped him, and it would not let him go. He couldn't sleep that night. And he reached for the Bible that he had so again and again and again uh, resisted and refused. And he read it. And for the first time in his life, it made sense to him. And he understood it. And he couldn't put it down. And he read and read and kept reading and reading until he couldn't, until he couldn't read anymore. The power of the gospel and the power of God through the gospel was at work in him. It wouldn't let him go. It drew him from death to life. It regenerated his dead heart, and he went on to become one of the greatest missionaries of his era, putting his life on the line again and again to smuggle in Bibles, and so going from smuggling an alcohol to a tent, tent meeting to smuggling Bibles into these places where Christianity was not allowed and bringing the good news of Jesus to the darkest places behind the Iron Curtain. And he became known as... Brother Andrew, God's smuggler. And today he is the founder of Open Doors, a ministry that continues to advance the gospel message and strengthen the persecuted church in the darkest areas of the world. Well, the story of Brother Andrew is just one of many stories that shows what the gospel really is. It's not just a message we share, it's not an invitation. It's not a program we offer. It is the very power of God for salvation. The power of the gospel is a power to change minds and transform hearts and rescue hell-deserving sinners from the wrath of the Almighty God. That's what the gospel is. And friends, this is why we are not to be ashamed of the gospel. 
It is the very power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. How, how could we be ashamed of something so powerful, so life-giving, so astoundingly gracious? It breaks chains and releases captives. It turns sinners from objects of wrath into children of God. It, it brings hope to the hopeless. It fills the empty. It satisfies the thirsty. It transforms hearts and changes lives. It draws people from death to life and from darkness to light, from lies to truth, from despair to joy, and from condemnation to justification, from corruption to glory. And so I bring before you the question again, are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you? Jesus himself reminded us how much is at stake in that question, didn't he? In the Gospels, he said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Those are pretty sobering words from the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. If you've been exposed to the gospel, then you must make your choice. You can either hide among the crowd, quietly acquiescing to cultural norms, or you can stand out, embracing unashamedly the countercultural foolishness of the gospel. To acquiesce is to walk the wide road that leads to destruction. To stand out is to take the narrow road that leads to life. Like Paul, we are not to be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And if you want to know why that is, why is it the power of God that brings salvation? Well, you got to come back next week because the answer is in verse 17. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there's a scene in which the hobbit Pippin is standing at the gates of the city. And as he's standing there, the, the, the demon king comes through those gates to destroy the city, and it appears that all is about to be lost. But then, off in the distance, Pippin hears the, the horns of the riders of Rohan. And the horns signal that they've come to to rescue. And the king of Rohan leads the way, and even though the king of Rohan rides to his death, the city is saved. And as Tolkien puts it, for the rest of his life, Pippin could never hear a horn in the distance without bursting into tears. And the reason why is because every time he heard the horn in the distance, it reminded him of his salvation and of the one who died for him. May the gospel, the message of the gospel, be to us what the horn was to Pippin. May it move us to a heartfelt celebration and gratitude because it reminds us of our salvation and of the one who died for us. Let us not, let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Let us embrace it openly and proclaim it boldly, knowing that it is the very power of God for salvation. Let's bow together.
Oh Lord, as we come before your throne in this time of silent prayer and response and as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, Lord, I pray that you would hear our silent prayers as we confess before you the ways that we have been and are ashamed of the gospel. And I pray, O Lord, that you would draw us anew to the wonder of the gospel as the power of God for salvation, that we may not be ashamed anymore. Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, there is nothing more glorious in all the world than the gospel, the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners, for the sacrificial death and perfect righteousness of Christ. Oh, Lord, as we come forward for communion this morning, I pray that you would Awaken within us or fan into flame within us, O Lord, a renewed wonder and a renewed exuberance and a renewed boldness for the beautiful, life-giving, astoundingly gracious message of the gospel. And if we have not yet received it in true faith, I pray, O Lord, that you would be at work through the message, through the gospel message, and through communion to awaken a true and dynamic and living faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.